0: Morning. So, for more than four hours yesterday, the world watched um, together. The world watched a memorial service in Houston, Texas, as relatives, and preachers, musicians, politicians prayed um, uh, paid tribute to George Floyd. It was covered uninterrupted. I want you to consider this: four hours. It was it was covered uninterrupted, much like a state funeral would be across ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox Affiliates, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, CNN International, and BBC World. So literally the world had the opportunity yesterday for four hours uninterrupted to, uh, to watch George Floyd's uh, homegoing service. That's what his family and friends called it, his homegoing service. George Floyd, uh, a professing Christian. Reverend Al Sharpton, referring to Psalm 118 in his eulogy, said, quote, God took the rejected stone and made him the cornerstone of a movement that's going to change the whole wide world. Um, Now, that is going to be uh, unsettling to some who are listening to me now, and I recognize that. What I am seeking to have us uh, do is consider that this is... uh, uh, unprecedented in terms of a uh, not just a media event but global attention being paid to the death of someone whose name we literally did not know we um, were not aware of just a couple of weeks ago representative al green called for the creation of a national department of reconciliation to combat racism so that would be a, a federal federal level department should that uh, idea take root uh Senator Mitch McConnell has formed a um, task force in the Senate headed up by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Um, overnight, Joe Biden, the presumptive nominee of the Democrat Party uh, in terms of the office, uh, seeking the office of the presidency in this 2020 election cycle, uh, overnight posted a, or the USA Today posted a, um, an op-ed by Joe Biden, we must urgently root out systemic racism from policing to housing to opportunity. Federal dollars should not go to departments that violate people's rights or turn to violence as a first resort. But I don't support defunding the police. So um, I do think that there uh, there is a lot to cover this morning and process in terms of what's happening in the headline news. But let me begin where we rightly begin Where in the word are you today? Where in the word are you today? Um, As biblical illusions are uh, lifted up by politicians and pundits across the board, do we know what the chief cornerstone language is really about? Do we know the person to whom that rightly refers? Do we understand um, what race is biblically? Um, by the way it doesn't exist it talks about nations talks about ethnicities um doesn't talk about race so so i do think that there are conversations that we rightly have right so we're we're going to talk about um realities in the world today and we're going to bring the gospel to bear so for those of you who are wondering what in the world is Carmen doing this is what in the world Carmen is doing uh, day in and day out, seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day that you and I might be prepared to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. That's, that's what I'm doing. And yes, it's, it, it, it's hand-wringing and it's forehead-rubbing um, and it's stress-producing. Like I get that. I get that. But I'm trying to um, help each of us and all of us be more prepared for the conversations of the day that you and I would be able to bring the gospel witness to bear in every conversation, even these really, really hard ones. So to help us do that, up next, we've got Pastor Daryl Crouch. He is the pastor of the Green Hill Church. He also blogs at uh, crosstide.com. I'm going to pull that up and make sure that I've got the right URL as I'm sharing it with you. We'll be right back. me again today is Pastor Daryl Crouch. He's the pastor of the Green Hill Church. He also blogs at crosstide.org. Um, Daryl, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Carmen. It's great to be with you. Thanks for being faithful through these days.
0: Ooh, yeah, this is uh, a <clears throat> thank you. Thank you for um, being an ongoing conversation partner uh, on things that really matter. And uh, and today we're going to talk about uh, a, a piece that you have actually posted at factsandtrends.net. Um, the piece that I am reading from right now is entitled, What is the Church's Responsibility in Combating Racism? So um, we could just unpack that piece by piece. I think we'll just dive in um, acknowledging and recognizing that um, we've all seen a horrific video and we have all witnessed the, uh, the wake, the aftermath um, of the death of George Floyd Um, and the officer will get his day in court, as you observe. But then we move um, to the evil of racism. Talk talk with us about uh, the evil of racism and justice denied.
1: Well, you're right in that racism is a construct that, you know, doesn't belong in our gospel, uh, in in a gospel conversation, really. It doesn't, or in in a biblical worldview, rather. And so, I think we have to acknowledge that that this is a sin problem. Tony Evans did that a long time ago. He's you know, it's not it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. I think we have to acknowledge that the way that we discriminate against people because of their skin color and the way that we have treated people because of the way they look and where they've come from and what their socioeconomic place in life is or what their background is, is a sin problem in that we have as conservative evangelicals as we want to be or think of ourselves as being, how we can actually deny the inerrancy of Scripture as we learn there that everyone is an image bearer stamped, stamped with the image of God and is worthy of respect and dignity and compassion no matter who they are or where they've come from or, and this is a little tougher for some of us, what they believe about God, the Bible, Jesus, Uh, These are all image bearers and to uh, treat them in any other way other than with honor and respect is a sin problem. And it really is a heart problem. And there are uh, social constructs that have been developed over our history as a as a nation and that um, people of color have uh, borne the weight of that in disproportionate amounts than than other people of uh Of lighter complexion, and so I, I think to acknowledge that and just to say, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that we um, will agree about everything related to that conversation, but just for people of faith to say there is a problem, and that problem may be in my own heart uh, to a greater extent than I think it is, and as I've walked with some of my church folks and community. Uh, leaders and community people, through this conversation like you have over the last couple of weeks, particularly we, we we've discovered again that we really don't know ourselves as well as we think we do, and that that's just the nature of sin i don't I don't see my blind spots, that's why we call them blind, and so I think for us just to be humble to take a humble posture about our own selves and what maybe we've contributed. To this issue that has put our neighbors in a very bad place over time is, is really the the beginning of healing and and, and and I think that's where it begins yeah
0: so I appreciate um, the practical way in which you approach this um, you offer us uh, five simple acts of love um, that we can enter into together to to tangibly move like right to tangibly mm-hmm. move in the direction of the church taking responsibility in sort of actively combating racism. So, we're not just going to passively um, not do things that are expressly racist. We're going to actively engage in what you and I would consider maybe anti racist activities. Right. One is just simply grieving together. Let's just start there. Um, what does it look like to grieve together?
1: Well, at first, it's to say that I understand that you're hurting. I don't mm-hmm. understand all the pain, but I understand that you're hurting and I care about you because you're hurting. Uh, when when someone says, I'm suffering, when someone says, I feel this way, when someone says, um, you know, this hurt me, uh, it's not really helpful in any circumstance to say, well, here's all the reasons you shouldn't feel that way. Or here's all the reasons you, you know, you should really not be hurting like that. Or here's the reason, I don't really understand that pain. So so I don't really have any obligation to care for you. That's crazy. Uh, Romans twelve fifteen is really clear, and that that we weep with those who weep. We we care about people, and I think uh, sometimes again our political or social constructs in our own mind create a barrier from us empathizing with people, who who are hurting under the weight of something. Frankly, we we really don't understand. So I, I think the conversations we have where we put ourselves around people intentionally, that we put ourselves around people who are different th- than us, ask them real questions, and listen to them uh, to so that they don't have to go through this by themselves, so that they know that there's at least one person. Yeah, I'm sure there's scores, but that there's at least one person who cares about them, and that we make room uh, for them to cry, and that we make sure, as I said in my article, that they don't cry alone. That is, there is no reason for that, no matter who you are, what you believe, or where you've come from.
0: All right, when we come back, let's um, let's continue on through just these really practical five simple acts of love that we as Christians can engage in right now, right now, to sort of actively um, participate in seeing the church be responsible to combat racism in our day. This conversation continuing with Pastor Darrell Crouch. You can find him at Crosstide.org. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Pastor Daryl Crouch. Uh, we're talking about what the church can do, like right now, right where you are. You, as an agent of grace and a minister of reconciliation, what can you do right now where you are to combat racism um, uh, in in our country, starting in your own community and maybe in your own household? Um, so we have uh, we have talked about what's first on the list, which is simply to grieve together. The second uh, the second thing on the list here is to listen long and to speak less.
1: Yeah, I, I think, Carmen, the uh, temptation we have, just naturally, I think I have it. I, I, I think we all want to defend ourselves. We all want to say what we think is true. Uh, we're tempted to think because we think it, it must be true, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, the truth is that white people are in a predominantly white culture, um, lack some understanding. And uh, when we begin to speak from our perspective, uh, and make, uh, proclamations and so on, uh, it really, there becomes a disconnect and, uh, what's so encouraging over the last two weeks it, a lot has been discouraging, but what has been so encouraging is that so many people are having these conversations, um, Black folks and white folks and uh, people from different backgrounds socioeconomically are coming to the table. People from different religious backgrounds, faith communities of different uh, stripes are coming to the table to have conversations and When we can do that, when we can listen and listen longer uh, before we begin to make a lot of judgments and a lot of um, give a lot of advice, everybody feels. Uh, better about continuing that conversation later, because there's no, we're not going to solve this in a moment. Uh, We're not going to, you know, this is a process of learning to love one another. And I think if we want to love our neighbor well, which Jesus said was really important, uh, then we have to listen to our neighbor. If I want to love my wife well, I have to be a good listener to know how, I could do that best. And so I think just in personal relationships with our neighbors, we just have to learn to listen. And a lot of us are, like, I don't know if it's social media. I don't know if it's the political environment that we're in. I don't know exactly where that comes from, but we are often um, you know, quicker to speak than to listen. And so uh, uh, listening faster will help us uh, over the long haul.
0: All right. And then we come uh, to number three, which is what do what you can do. Do what you can do.
1: Yeah, I love this, Carmen. You're doing what you can do. You have a radio show. Not everybody, most people don't have a radio show. Uh, I'm a pastor. Most people aren't a pastor and don't have the opportunity to speak to folks at this place. But uh, everybody, as you mentioned, can have a conversation around the dinner table. Uh, Me and my family did that last night at length. We had conversations from everything from Black Lives Matter to defunding the police or where that's coming from and, and just how to navigate some of these things. And so I think we can all do something. And what we have the power to do, we should do. Um, I had a gentleman ask me the other day, he said, Darrell, I'd like for these relationships to be, you know, it's a little awkward just to um, to manufacture these relationships with my neighbors. I want it to happen organically. Well, that sounds great, but Jesus didn't wait for that. He was intentional about coming to us. He did what he could, and uh, that was obviously a great deal for us, but he was intentional. So I think sometimes uh, folks are waiting for the conversation to come to them, waiting for the opportunity to come to them. But I really think to be Christianly in this particular moment is for us to, to step into it and do what we can in the moment. And that may be going over across the street to a neighbor, that may be making a phone call, that may be going to a protest, that may be uh, that may take a lot of forms. And it'll be different for everyone, Carmen. I think this is really important uh, for people who are white and a predominantly white culture. We, we kind of um, think that everybody should be doing what we're doing and uh, if you're not doing what I'm doing, then you must still have, uh, you must be more of a racist than I am or whatever the case may be. And so I think we've just got to give everybody a lot of grace. Uh, We have to show everybody a lot of kindness and uh, even pastors and uh, public figures and leaders, um, they they have certain lanes they need to run in right now and not every room that you walk into is a room that you need to take over. And so I just think to have wisdom and to walk as Jesus walked to be filled with the Holy Spirit in those conversations and to be sensitive to his leadership is so important during these days. We're not all on full tilt, you know, all the time. Uh, I think we have to give each other a lot of grace and kindness in this.
0: Number four is um, speak to be heard. Um, And and I'm going to let that one stand because I want to get to number five, which is keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ Um, There have certainly been some who have been critical of Christians because we do walk the gospel out into every one of these environments and conversations. um, Sort of embolden us to keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ um, and to do so in word and in deed.
1: Absolutely. Uh, there, There are, and again, we could debate this theologically, but I'm not sure that Jesus would have been crucified if he had just uh, preach the gospel on a street corner like a street preacher would be today. I think he may have gotten passed by a few times. You know, I don't know that he would have stirred it up, but he made an intent. He he made it intentional, like you are in this radio uh, program as well, to bring the gospel to bear on every area of life. Uh, with, uh, Abraham Kuyper said a long time ago, there's not one inch in all of created order that Jesus does not say, this is mine. And So I think we have a responsibility to bring the gospel to bear in every area of life. And Jesus made a habit of bringing those in the margins to the middle and uh, sharing the good news and letting them know that the blood of Christ ultimately would be enough to make them righteous with God and have a seat at the banquet table of uh, the Most High God and to be reconciled to God forever. And in that reconciliation with God, we have been reconciled to one another. And so I think the implications of the gospel are widespread and the, we do not stay in silos. The gospel is not contained. It affects every part of our life and every relationship that we have. And it, it does break down the dividing wall, obviously the gap between me and God, but in doing so it breaks down the dividing wall between Jew and Greek and slave and free. and male and female. Uh, and we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And so I think the gospel really is the solution. And And I think as a as a people of faith, the church, we've got to say, what's our role in this? Our, our, does government have a responsibility? Absolutely. The government's responsible for to protect and create an environment where everyone can thrive. But uh, the heart change that we long for begins here among the people of God, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, living that out, being salt and light, and trusting Him to move hearts from death to life and change us, and to continue to change us. I think that's one of the wonderful things about the gospel, is that we don't get saved and then put Jesus on a shelf somewhere. He continues to sanctify us, and sometimes it's a more difficult process than others, There's a little more scrubbing required things are a little more deeply rooted in us, some areas of sinfulness and pride. And so I think we continue to apply the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves every day and continue to step into what God is doing in our life to reconcile us to himself and to our neighbors.
0: That's Pastor Daryl Crouch. You can find him at Crosstide.org. You can find the piece that we've been discussing today, What is the Church's Responsibility in Combating Racism, at factsandtrends.net. and Daryl, as always, thank you so much.
1: So good to be with you.
0: So good to have you. We'll be right back. Okay, can you distinguish between uh, acknowledging that every life matters and that right now, uh, Black Lives Matter in, in a way that um, we need to continue talking about. Can you distinguish that conversation from Black Lives Matter um, as a uh, an organization, as an organizational effort, which I do not support? Um, acknowledging that Black Lives Matter, absolutely uh, supporting a specific organization, no. Can you distinguish between those two in the same way? In the same way that I would um, invite you to distinguish between the way let's say the rainbow has been co-opted politically by a particular group of people in ways I do not support, and yet I, um, I still see the rainbow set in the sky by God um, and, his, uh, and his declaration following the flood that, um, you know, is like the reminder to himself, well, I'm never going to do that again. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about distinguishing between Black Lives Matter uppercase and Black Lives Matter lowercase, and we're also going to talk about virtue signaling. We're going to talk about cultural appropriation. We're also going to talk about defunding and or reforming policing. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. All up next with Hunter Baker. We'll be right back.
1: According to a recent survey, 39% of high school students admitted to drinking alcohol within the last 30 days. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Parents can't afford to ignore such staggering statistics. So how can we prevent our teens from experimenting with booze? First, start a candid, ongoing conversation about drinking. Ask your teen to help you understand what motivates someone to grab a bottle in the first place. Then, communicate your beliefs on the subject and set concrete boundaries. Your teen needs to know the consequences well before he's ever tempted. You may never think that your son or daughter would never drink, but we're past the point of passive assumptions. It's time for parents to be proactive and help their teens say no to alcohol. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: I love talking with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University, and I have quite a list today. Professor, welcome back.
2: Well, I'm happy to be with you as always.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, OK, let's start with this. Um, can we distinguish between Black Lives Matter, all uppercase, as an organization uh, and maybe support of that organization versus the statement that Black Lives Matter, uh, all lowercase, and um, and my Absolutely ardent commitment to that.
2: Yeah, um, it's critical to distinguish between the two. Um, I, I have no doubt that that there is that there is a need for advocacy that Black Lives Matter. You know, I I have thought that it's kind of silly that we have this debate, you know, somebody says Black Lives Matter, somebody says All Lives Matter, somebody says Blue Lives Matter. The, the point of Black Lives Matter was that there was a feeling that uh, African-Americans were treated too cavalierly uh, or forcefully um, by law enforcement and by the criminal justice system, and it's a response to that. Uh, Black Lives Matter, all capital letters, trademark, as an organization concerns me greatly, uh, because if you delve into that, what you see is an organization that is uh, super progressive, I would say not in a good way, uh, you know, with statements like we need to decenter the nuclear family, you know, things like that, uh, essentially a, uh, a Marxist approach. Um, so I'm just, you know, one of my big concerns is that as we, as we kind of Get involved in this movement, and there's a lot of good things we can do. It's critical that we do not end up enabling uh, organizations and or politicians whose influence we will regret. And I think that Black Lives Matter, all capitals, uh, the organization is maybe one of those.
0: I would um, wholeheartedly agree. I remember having a conversation. I mean this is maybe three or four years ago now. Um, with um, sort of when the Black Lives Matter movement started, when the organization began to take shape, when it became obvious which direction it was going to head, um, Bruce Ashford and I spent an entire segment talking about you know, sort of the dangers of the Black Lives Matter organizational, you know, trademarked movement. Um, right. I am I am comfortable, however, in yeah. our current cultural context, acknowledging. That black lives matter, and I am able to distinguish that from support of a particular organization um, that's that's walking under that banner. I do the same thing um, in acknowledging, you know, the reality and power of the rainbow, um, without supporting those who have co opted the rainbow for their particular purposes.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different applications. You could um, you could be a very ardent pro lifer. Um, And yet feel the need to separate yourself uh, from some people in the movement who are uh, potentially extremists, who who may at times advocate violence, you know, things like that. Uh, It's always critical to kind of keep track of who exactly you're supporting, what exactly you're supporting uh, in the cultural moment. Um, One more thing to say is that is that the reason this debate over Black Lives Matter is so important <clears throat> is that I, I think that by watching the news people would get the idea that well only only african american men are ever killed by the police uh, mm-hmm. or african american women well that that's not true uh it it certainly happens but it happens more often uh relative to their uh percentage of the population so it's 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 disproportionately uh it happens to african americans and that's that's why the That's why it's become a big news narrative. That's why we hear a lot about it. And uh, government ultimately is coercive force. And so uh, we have to use that well. Uh, And if we don't, if we abuse it, uh, or if we're too cavalier about it, or if we are biased in the way that we use it, then you get the kind of disaster that we've seen develop.
0: Okay, I wanna um, center in for just a second on the statement, government is ultimately coercive force. Um, yes <clears throat> take us back to the to to the basics because um what what is government at its most basic level
2: i mean to me government is the uh, the institution mandated by god to maintain order right to maintain order and to uh to do justice and when we say to do justice uh sometimes we think about social justice and things like that but but there's also just plain old justice, justice, right? I mean, crime will be punished. Uh, we will we will punish people to uh, to as Martin Luther said to restrain and coerce evil men. Uh, that is the most fundamental application of justice, uh, and I think that it's God mandated. Uh, but it requires coercive force. I mean, government is where we get beyond. Voluntary cooperation, and we're talking about you will be made to do something. And behind that is the jail cell, uh, the fine, the uh, tax—you know, even the electric chair, something like that. And so, whenever we're going to use government, we need to exercise the utmost care because because it is the most powerful, in a physical sense, thing in a society, and and maybe the most dangerous.
0: And it reflects it reflects the society that it governs. Right. I mean, we have the government we have because we are the people we are.
2: That's right. We choose it. Uh, And and another thing I just want to say, as we as we kind of are are crusading against the abuses, I also think it's important that we don't kind of kneecap our law enforcement apparatus, because I think about uh, a lot of folks living in Mexico are now living in kind of a, a lawless environment where in some places, cartels are actually more powerful than the state or more powerful than the police. I assure you, that is the last thing you want. Uh, if right. you were living in that situation, it's the only thing you would want is, to, is for the police to be back in charge, uh, for the state to be back uh, in its chair. So as we try to reform, uh, we don't want to uh, to make the police ineffective or something like that. We just wanna make them more fair, more judicious, more careful.
0: Okay, let's pivot to that conversation um, right after the break. Let's pivot to the conversation, um, first of all, about you know defunding the police, which I, I think is utterly ridiculous, um, but the conversation about reforming the police, which seems a reasonable conversation to be having right now. So that conversation up next with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. We'll be right back. Joe Scarborough um, interviewed Reverend Al Sharpton on the defund the police movement. Here is what Al Sharpton had to say:
2: In Minneapolis, they're talking about abolishing the police department. The Minneapolis mayor was booed off the stage uh, because he didn't, he wouldn't say that he was going to abolish the Minneapolis police department. And yet, when I heard an interview yesterday <clears throat> uh, of a city councilwoman uh, from Minneapolis, uh, she kept being pushed by the CNN reporter as to whether this meant actually abolishing the police department or reforming the police department. Her non-answer suggested that defunding the police is actually a code word for many people for reforming the police. What can you tell us from what you've heard with activists?
1: That's what I've heard. I've heard that they're really talking about uh, adjusting
0: and and in many ways re, uh, uh, recommitting the funding Toward things like community policing, like mental health intervention that does not involve policing as we know it. All right. So um, Al Sharpton is sort of acknowledging that the sloganism of uh, defunding the police is uh, is without interpretation is misleading. Um, Hunter, let's let's weigh into the conversation about defunding the police versus reforming the police.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, the the slogan defund the police, this is this is what I would call irresponsible demagoguery. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the kind of thing that is done to uh, whip up a frenzy uh, in people. Uh, Plato writes about this, you know, thousands of years ago uh, that there are some uh, politicians is is maybe too noble a word who choose a moment uh, to appeal to the passions of people. Rather than to their logic uh, to their philosophical mind, and something like defund the police that 's what that is now, in terms of what that means uh, I think that I think that activists are are kind of divided, some may just use it as a way to kind of to get attention. Some do mean what uh, Al Franken said, which is they're they're imagining, well, we're going to spend less on the police and we're going to spend more on mental health or more on welfare or more on housing. Um, and then there are others who imagine replacing the police with uh, something that I might call a rapid response social worker, you know, somebody who... Uh, is not trained necessarily in using a weapon or something, but is in, trained in uh, conflict resolution techniques or or things like that. As I hear all this, uh, my suspicion is is that we're kind of replaying the end of the '60s and the early '70s. Uh, Carmen, I don't know. I can't remember if we decide whether you're older than me or vice versa, but
0: uh, I I, I you, turned fifty two <laughs> yes, yesterday.
2: Okay, well I'm turning 50 this summer. Oh, uh but a lot of those in the in the early to mid 70s, uh there were a lot of these that's when the dirty harry movies were born. Uh and the the Charles Bronson Death Wish movies. And so we all kind of remember that trope of the cop or the vigilante who's had it with the ineffective wimpy state. Uh, that is uh, unable to stop criminals from victimizing people, it's a cycle, right? I mean, the police go over the top and then we want to hold them back and we want to restrain them and then we overdo it uh, and then we yearn for a stronger presence. And uh, I suspect we'll see something like that play out over time.
0: Okay, so this is going to be an ongoing conversation. I do think we are going to see reform efforts um, at every level across the country. I just want to encourage people to be engaged in those conversations in your own local community. Go talk to your police. go talk to your community officers. I mean, conversations in places uh, like Oregon where they're talking about pulling all police officers out of schools. Hey, let's remember why we put them there okay um uh, so let's not let's not say that school shootings um, are suddenly now just magically a thing of the past. Um, we need we need officers present as a deterrent in some cases, um, but certainly to protect and serve those uh, who are gathered in particular places who are particularly vulnerable and have no way to defend themselves. So um, let's pivot, Hunter, to uh, a brief conversation here about what's going on in the culture in terms of what what prior to this would have absolutely been pointed at and lifted up as – cultural appropriation. So I see this scene in Washington, <laughs> D.C., where Democrats have um, uh, around their necks these stoles that are clearly, clearly um, African cloth, kente cloth. right? And they are kneeling down um, for, you know, the, the eight, the, the requisite almost nine minutes of silence. Um, so I get the, I get the time of silence. I get what that is a reference to. I don't get a bunch of white people kneeling down in, a, in, a, in what absolutely looks like a picture of cult- cultural appropriation. It also looks like the appropriation of religious garb um, in terms of right. the, the use of the kente cloth. Just help me understand what I'm even looking at.
2: Oh, it, well, I mean, a lot of politics is performance, right? I mean, uh, yeah, the, to me, the whole cultural appropriation uh, debate has been nonsensical from the start. Uh, because if you think about it, um, if you, if you take that too far, right, you know, so you can say things like, well, uh, white people use African American people's language or white people use African American people's, uh, style or fashion or uh, an art form like jazz or rapping or or something like that. And then I think to myself, yeah, but a white guy invented basketball, right? I mean, do we want to say it's cultural appropriation if African-Americans play basketball? Uh, No, we don't want to say that. Uh, So on one hand, that debate is, is, uh, silly, but on the other hand, I did think it was funny when I saw the, uh, the liberal politicians dressed up that way. I thought this is a, this is like one of the greatest examples of whiteness that I have ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) I found it visually, uh, humorous, even though they're making a serious point. So let me give them the credit. They're trying to show solidarity, right? Uh, and we need to find ways to show solidarity, but also uh, avoiding the sense that it's just purely symbolic or that uh, or that we're being patronizing or something like that.
0: I, I love the way that you're able to frame an issue um, and help me understand it and help me see it and, uh, and help me process through it, I do, because I do want to show solidarity. I also do Amen. not want, I don't want to participate in, um, in actions or demonstrations that really are political theater, performance art. Um, yes. I, I want it to be real. And so um, thank you for, for helping me sort of frame the way I'm thinking about that and even looking at it. As always, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward, as always, to our next conversation. Um, have a Have a great couple of weeks, man.
2: You too. Thank you.
0: We'll talk soon. That's Hunter Baker from Union University. We'll be right back. Okay, I recognize we are tilling some soil that is um, that is a heavy lift uh, for first thing in the morning. I get that. So let me um, let me just spend a minute. This is a slight lighten up, not not super duper light. Um, But are you aware that social media platforms um, now, including TikTok, are actually deleting content um, based on, you know, frankly, just completely spurious standards? And so, um, TikTok. I mean, the news headline here is that TikTok has deleted a video of a Catholic priest explaining why Christians um, should not support Pride Month. Right. So he's talking actually about um, the you know what what the Bible says about the rainbow and who it belongs to and uh, the created order of things and people being created in God's image, uh, male and female distinctly and. Um, and for a purpose, on purpose and for a purpose, for, uh, for one kind of union that brings forth new life. All right, TikTok removed it. Um, and so uh, I just wanna ask this, like, do you even know who's controlling the feed of what you see on social media? Um, do you recognize that there are people censoring the content? Um, and, and what does that say really about sort of the free exchange of ideas in the culture today? I just wanna lift that up. Um, you should know this. You don't actually see what I see in my social feed um, because there are censors out there censoring what I see and what you see. And we don't actually even see the same thing. So let's uh, let's keep talking. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.